I want to begin this morning by just reading to you the words of Mark fifteen thirty three through 39, because there is there's just no better way to begin setting up this psalm than by turning to these moments. It reads, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, In this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. As we were singing this morning, I had one word racing through my head. Deliberate. The word deliberate. Sometimes when we think of words that are used, words that are said we always think of someone planning out their words in a calculating manner. It's always negative. This person really thought about what they were going to say. They really had a strong decision, and they made a calculating choice on what would come out of their mouth. It's not often that we think of that in a positive way or even in an encouraging way. If a husband plans out the way he intends to speak to his wife, as I described to my mother-in-law, the other day, it can seem disingenuous, which was her response, that if if my husband, if Larry, my father-in-law, does, when he does that, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like that he has to plan these things out. I like to plan things out when talking to Hannah, because she is a special butterfly who needs to be cared for in a specific way. Just kidding. But, so it's not calculating, it's planning Because the plan is what's best. The plan is most beneficial. The plan brings the most grace. And our psalm today is the psalm that was chosen for most grace. As Jesus breathed his last on the cross, his dying words, his dying hours, one psalm, was on his mind. One psalm was on his heart, and one psalm was on his lips. His lips, excuse me. Psalm twenty-two, our psalm today. Just think of that. He who, as a man, had full knowledge of the scriptures, was greatly taught by the priests and by the surrounding community, was adept at the use of the scriptures, who had shown wisdom and skill in the word of God from the earliest of ages. At 12 years old, they were amazed at what he knew. 
and caused the writers and teachers of his day to wonder, how does he know this? Who taught him? Isn't he just some plain carpenter? And he who also was God incarnate, knowing the word of God in totality, inspiring the word of God as God, he chose one passage, one passage to recite as he died. Psalm 22. And that, that kind of thing, because Christ never threw a word away. He never just said things without purpose. He wasn't flippant. He wasn't, he wasn't reckless. Everything had intention. Everything had purpose. And everything was towards a great and glorious end. So that causes me to ask, and I hope it causes you to ask, why Psalm 22? Why this psalm at his death? Why this lament? Why not Job? Job is a story, a poem, an epic poem of lament. Why didn't he quote Job? Or why not a different lament? There are 42 individual laments and 16 corporate laments in the book of Psalms. Not to mention that which occurs throughout the prophets and the Pentateuch and in all of the law and the writings. Why Psalm 22? Why not something more despairing? Why not something happier? We are going to answer that question today. And as a foretaste, to read this psalm is to hear the heart and mind of Jesus in his crucifixion. This is to experience it first person. There is not a note of just someone watching there is not a note of someone relaying what occur, what appeared to occur to happen. This is a first person narrative of a person suffering and dying on a cross, which when the psalm was written was not in existence. This form of execution was not invented for generations after. The Jews knew nothing of it. King David would have no experience with this type of situation. And yet this psalm depicts the crucifixions the Romans would, would do in such horrific and explicit detail that we, we almost just can't read it without being in horror. It is raw. It's graphic because it's very strong emotionally and spiritually. And to be honest, from my point of view, it's more powerful than in any passion play or any passion of the Christ movie could ever depict. Because this doesn't just make it about the physical suffering. This is about the emotional and spiritual despair that Christ went through and the faith that intermingled with it. But that alone is not why Jesus spoke this psalm, recited this psalm, perhaps even sang in a way this psalm in his death. But the psalm tells us why. Now, just a little bit, I gave you some history. This psalm was written little more than a thousand years before Jesus' life and before his cross. It was written by King David, who never would have experienced torment or suffering like this. He never would have been put in a place where an execution was right at hand. It is a lament. 
It is prophetic and it is glorious. And as we search for the why of this psalm, we are going to approach it section by section. And we're just going to take it a few verses at a time, and I'm going to work through what is happening. And I just pray that as you read it with me, consider that this is Christ speaking. That this is Christ thinking. That this is his heart and, and, and all of his emotion on the cross and experience it that way, and not simply as just some ancient poem. But before we go into it, let me just say a prayer. Lord God, we are in constant need of you, and we rest on your promise that you are with us always, as you declared in Matthew 28 when you, com- when you commissioned us to go. And so as we turn and look to your death and to your resurrection, to your cross, we pray that we would celebrate you, that we would be reminded of your grace, and that we would be blessed by your sacrifice. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verses 1 through 2 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is a lament. We talked about laments a few weeks ago, laments are songs that combine three major elements. They combine sorrow, prayer, and faith. Remember, the great way to remember psalms is to think of the fact that math makes you sad, and which would cause you to lament. And so you need your SPF, your sorrow, you need prayer, and you need faith. When you have those three elements, you have a lament. And so the author is lamenting and he is portraying the reality of the cross. And we just have to start by saying the horror of the cross is not the horror that we see in the movie. That's not the hardest part of the cross. The suffering, while disturbing and gross, it's, it's important aspect to see what Christ had to go through, the pain, the severity And just the reality of crucifixions in Rome and in the Roman Empire. But the horror of it is more so in the spiritual element. Because on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, experienced something he had never experienced before. As a member of the Trinity, he was in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Perfect fellowship. We we can't think of that. We can't even really comprehend that. We only get taste. Think of the closest friend that you've ever had. Or perhaps the best way to think of it might be, think of your earliest friendship. The earliest friendship you can remember. And how great that friendship was. And then, as most friendships do, unless you are one in a million, how that friendship ended. When I was in kindergarten, I remember my best friend telling me that he was moving away. 
that he was moving because their parents decided to move. And I remember just being broken by that. And for years, having dream after dream that all of a sudden he came back and said, oh yeah, we decided to move back. And just all those years of this desire to have that first amazing initial friendship renewed. And that's like the closest I can think between between the, the despair that Christ would feel because he had never experienced separation. There had never been separation from the Father and the Spirit. They had always been in communion, always been in perfect relationship with one another. And here at the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He was perfect, who was righteous, who was in complete relationship with God, the Father. All of of a sudden, and in an instant, was the exact thing that the Father hated most. That was most cursed. That was most hated. That was most, most worthy of judgment. And so the horror of the cross is the fact that Jesus lost that relationship in this time in order that just judgment could go upon sin. And so rightfully, he laments as he does. And he laments this way not because of the pain that comes from physical torment, but the pain that came from separation. The pain that came from this all of a sudden broken relationship in the Godhead that would only be be repaired through what they were accomplishing. And so he cries. And then we read verses 3 through 5. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted. And we're not put to shame. And in the contrast of the reality of the curse, Jesus remains confident. He remains confident. Because even though he knows that he is separated, he knows the love of the Father. And he knows the promises that have been made. And he knows that which he is set to accomplish. And so he laments, but he laments confidently which goes with our main definition of laments, that they are songs that confront the suffering of the present with the truth of the past, which is what he does, and you, our fathers, trusted, and the hope of the future. Laments are songs that confront the suffering of the present with the truth of the past and the hope of the future. And I just want to start by saying, as we said a few weeks ago, this is how our laments must go in our lives. If you are sad, if you are despairing, if you are going through a rough time, but you have trust in the Lord and you do not understand what is going on, then my encouragement is to lament, to call upon the Lord from a place of faith in sorrow through prayer, knowing that the Lord has delivered and will deliver, and he is here. So I would encourage you, when the doctor gives you news that you do not desire, that you lament. When you hear of a friend that is going through sorrow, 
that you lament. When you are experiencing death and destruction in your family that you would lament. When relationships are broken in friendship and in faith, lament. Because that is the means the Lord has given us to deal with the despair that is in our lives. And that is what Christ does. He laments. And he laments confidently. And this confidence, it is nothing new. It's nothing new. If we look at the life of Christ, we can see him again and again confidently stating that not only would his cross occur, but that the Lord would get him through it. When he first told the disciples and had Peter testify that he was the Messiah, the Savior, he told the disciples that he would die in Matthew 16, 21. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the hours leading up to his arrest and eventual crucifixion, his prayer is not a prayer that says, I don't understand what you're doing. It is a prayer in Matthew 26, 39 that says, If it is your will, take this cup away. But not my will, but your will be done. Again, confident. And then as Hebrews 12, 2, when he approached the cross, he did not approach it in trepidation. He did not approach it saying, I really hope this will work. He approached it for the joy that was set before him. Full knowledge of not only what God was doing, but what this cross would accomplish. And so rightfully he says, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. He knew that he would not be put to shame. And then as in the fact that it is a lament, he continues six through eight. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. This is how far his suffering had gone. This is how low he was. This is how he was viewed by society. He was no longer considered a man. He was so shamed, so isolated, so disconnected that he was as lowly as a worm in heart and in the view of the people. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. His swing goes back from confidence from confident praise to the terror of the moment. He is humiliated. He is a worm. All who are looking upon him are mocking him because that was the Roman practice. They were crucified publicly, not because it was a nice thing to do, but because it was the greatest way to show the shame of the criminal. This criminal is opposed to the empire and we are murdering them. We are killing them so you do not behave the way they have. And thus Christ was crucified in a humiliating manner. And the people that would gather around for these things were not people that were there because 
They were there to help. Sometimes some of their family would come and try to help. But the people there were simply there to mock. And what, what is described here, it doesn't translate because of the cultural, the cultural gap. But when they say, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. This is an act in which you essentially stick your bottom lip out as far as you can and just shake your head back and forth. And we think, well, that's like a comedic device. That seems like a funny thing that would be now done nowadays. It was the culmination of the worst gestures you can imagine in our culture, whether it be flipping the bird, whether it be any number of things that we could do as human beings to cause someone shame. Essentially, it's saying they're doing that. This is one of the most shameful gestures that could be done. And so what is being described is not only are they mocking me, not only are they humiliating me, but they're doing so in the worst, worst way imaginable. They are out for my, they are trying to break my heart. They are trying to embarrass me beyond measure and it is working. And not only are they doing it with physical insults, they're doing it with spiritual insults. They're calling into question my God. They're saying that, you know, his faith is not in the right God because he's dying. He's dying. Let his God deliver him. And so in his despair, and in just the complete pit that he is in, yet again, he swings back. Despite being the lowest of the low, terribly mocked, horribly shamed, and humiliated, he sings once more. And he says in 9 through 11, Yet, in spite of everything that's happened, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. He returns to the reality of his God. You've always been there, Lord. You've always helped. I haven't gotten to where I have today, if not for you. Since I was a child, you have provided for me. You gave me my parents. You gave me my mother that received me. You provided the milk that I needed for life. I was born because of your love. And so now, come. Come, Lord. His trust is just so amazing. In the midst of the worst of situations, his trust continues. And if you think of the early life of Christ, you can see how he could sing that. You can see how he can declare that. Because not not months from his birth, a genocide occurred for him to be killed. He was so hated, he was so feared that the children were murdered in in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas, because the leaders did not want to risk the Jewish people having a leader such as was prophesied of. And so all of these children were murdered. And they, as a family, barely escaped to Egypt. And over and over throughout his life, Christ was cared for by his Father in heaven, working to move this small family from place to place, country to country, village to village, 
so rightly. If he was kept safe in that, if he who was born in a manger was kept safe in his early life, how much more could the Lord keep him safe now? And I really think that we need that. I really think that we need to set our hearts on those realities. We need to go to the word of God and see it telling us things like this, that our lives from birth, God has been there for us. God has been saving us. God has been helping us. God has been keeping us. And we need to enter the horrible situations of life and saying, you delivered before. How much more will you deliver now? How much more are you there for me now? How much less should I fear because I know you are with me always? We need that truth in our lives. And we need these deliberate statements in our daily prayers. And he continues. Back to despair. And what is here is just, what's written here is just heartbreaking. And over and over in the Gospels, everything that is written here is revealed and fulfilled. I'm just going to read it slowly. Many bowls encompass me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Usually this is declared as fulfilled through the soldiers who came and were piercing his flesh and whipping him and destroying him. And they were the strength of the empire that brought the crucifixion to be. But he continues, as he looks upon his body and his frame and his suffering, I am poured out like water, which is a poetic description of just the nature of the cross and the strangulation of the body as he hung. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And again, fulfilling and telling of what the crucifixion would look like. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Over and over and over, the experience of Jesus specifically and clearly foretold. And then with one last cry, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. Call, call, call. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Nothing about this psalm depicts any possibility of hope. But in it, the psalmist and Jesus himself does not cease to cry upon unto the Father, to cry out to the Father. So please, do not give up so easily in your prayers. 
And then last, 22 through 31. And here a hard shift occurs. All throughout this psalm, we have heard the first person story of a person who is being crucified and who is crying out to their Lord, who is being executed and crying out to their Lord. And all of a sudden, there is a change. And as you read, it could be easy to miss it. But there is a specific change that happens. What had been a lament shifts to an outright praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform but for those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Unborn. That he has done it. This hard shift all of a sudden goes from being very individualistic, very personal, very much just a prayer of calling out and lamenting. All of a sudden it shifts to a dramatic, congregational, national, worldwide group praise. The Lord is praised because of what he will do and has done and has accomplished. And the psalmist, at some point, experiencing something so amazing that he tells of the name of the Lord to his brothers, the offspring of Jacob and Israel, the great congregation, the afflicted of the nations, all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, all the prosperous of the earth, and the posterity, which literally means the unborn future generations who will hear what he has to say. Many, 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 many will hear. But what? What? What will they hear? What do they hear? What happened to cause this psalmist to go from cries of utter despair, from saying to the Lord, I need you, deliver me from the power of the dog, from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen, what happened? Why did he say that? One word. One word happened. And it's at the very end. It's actually, for us, it's one, two, three, four, five. It's five words that he has done it. But it's always one word everywhere else. In Hebrew, it is the word asah. Asah, one word in Hebrew, and its Greek counterpart, which you might know, is tetelestai. So asah or tetelestai, 
we, we, need a, we need a great word for this word, this he has done it. But instead, how we translate it and how we usually think of it is the words, the three words, it is finished. It is finished. This, this word or phrase is the very reason for the shift to praise. And you say, well, what does that word have to do? It specifically refers to what was happening on the cross. That it is finished. That Jesus, when he begins his death in Mark 15, 33 through 39, and in Matthew and Luke as well, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The beginning of Psalm 22 but when he breathes his last in John 19.30, he says the final word of the psalm, Asa, he has done it. It is finished. Which means everything I have said portrays what is rightfully happening to me. But what is rightfully happening is God is punishing sin. He is dealing with the sin of your life. And guess what? He has done it. He has done it. And it is done. Psalm 22. Why this psalm? Why did Jesus choose this psalm and utter its bookends at at his death? Because there is nothing, there is nothing in the Bible that is more suited to his crucifixion, that more properly explains his crucifixion, that more powerfully declares in song form what was happening. Nothing that could measure up to this psalm. And you know, you just have to think, you just have to think, how was his life as a child? How did the father reveal these things? At some point in Jesus' life, as he was instructed, as he received knowledge from the Lord and was given clarity and wisdom and grace, he knew that this psalm was about his death. But at the same time, he knew that that last word would be the last word about his death. That his death was not going to be Satan finally getting his comeuppance against God. Or it wasn't going to be the people defeating the rebellion of Christ and his disciples. No, he knew his death on the cross would be the last word. That he has done it. The father has reconciled his, himself to his people over sin. The price of sin has been paid for and the res- resurrection has occurred. And he has declared life fullness of life to us. And so the psalm was chosen because it's the gospel in full. It's sin being paid for and it's life being given. It's sin, the cost of it being presented to God and God saying, it is done, it is paid for, it is finished. Nothing less, nothing less could be declared on the cross. So I ask you, I ask you, as you read this psalm in the future, do not leave it unattended. Do not traipse through it. As you approach Psalm 22, do not say, ooh, it's kind of dismal. I need something a little bit more enlivening. Let this psalm cry out in your life. 
Sing this psalm as you read and let it cry into your life the purpose of Christ's death. Let it shout in your shame the power of his resurrection and let it celebrate in your life the truth of Christ's praise. Asa, to tell he has done it and it is finished. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that though sin is burdensome and costly, that you paid the ultimate price on the cross through your death. And now through your resurrection, we have life and life to the full. And so we glory in you and we celebrate you and we thank you. And so we just pray that you would bless our worship, that you would bless our day, and that you would bless us as we lament your death to see the glory of what it accomplished. Asa, asa, oh Lord, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, a few announcements this week. We have National Night Out in the Block Party coming up. Monday is National Night Out, and many of you are volunteering. Thank you so much for volunteering. Come on down if you're not volunteering. There's still going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be bounce houses, all kinds of stuff at the West Allis Farmer's Market. And then on Tuesday, we are having our, our, our block party, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And as I was... Thinking of my benediction, I hadn't even prepared for this, but this is, this is just suit. I'm going to read this and then give the benediction. But I was, I've been thinking about, as I was preparing for this, a verse in 2 Corinthians that says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. But the context of that verse is amazing. In verse 17, it starts, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word world to himself. What we talked about on the cross was Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are prepared, my brothers and sisters, my friends, for the block party and the national night out because of the truth of the cross and the resurrection because of the truth that we have been reconciled to God. So I pray that as you go forth, as you love, as you serve, as you talk, and as you just spend time in the community this Monday and Tuesday, that you would remember you are an ambassador for Christ in everything you do, how you love, how you serve, and how you speak testifies to the gospel. Receive the benediction. Lord, how marvelous and how wonderful is your love. We stand amazed, Lord, now, and we ask that you bless us as we go forth and as we declare your glory and your power. Be with us, O Lord, and bless all of us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.